0: As you take your seat, uh, be turning to Isaiah chapter 6, as has already been mentioned this morning. Here we have a glorious vision of Christ, and I want to think about what it's going to take to get us there this morning. My first vision of Christ probably came through Christmas celebrations, Christmas pageants, Sunday school curriculum, and that kind of thing, when I heard people say, hey, did you see the baby Jesus? Now, when you're encouraged by your parents or anybody to, to see the baby Jesus in the manger, you immediately begin to get a vision of God, right or wrong. And the more i've thought about that i said you know it's not really the vision we have in scripture even during the incarnation during the time of christ's birth the vision wasn't people coming and saying hey did you see the little baby jesus but the vision that's in those passages are glory to god in the highest the angels come and present Christ glorious. When the wise men show up, they say, let's bow down and worship. They obviously saw something much greater than we create and invent through our manger scenes and curricula. And I want us to get to a more biblical vision like that. So as I've thought about that, where where can we perhaps capture a more glorious vision of Christ. And Isaiah 6 is one of those places because Isaiah um, certainly gets it. He gets a vision. You know, it, it's one of those glory visions. It's one of those knock-you-off-your-feet visions that, Christ, that Isaiah gets of God here in this passage. So let's just jump right into it and uh, begin to look at it. I'll, I'll read it in sections. Let me read the first four verses of Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. So there's his vision. Sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Let's stop right there and just think about that much of it. I like the verse that uh, Jonathan shared with us just a minute ago, Psalm 96, where it says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness or worship the Lord in holy attire. Let the whole earth tremble let the whole earth tremble and you, you see that in this passage when we get the right vision of God there should be trembling in the earth trembling in our hearts trembling in our lives let me start looking at it verse by verse it Says um, verse 1 in the year King Uzziah's death now Think about that for just a moment. Uzziah is a king. And he's been on the throne for fifty two years. So he started at age sixty I mean sixteen, he's sixty-eight, and he dies. That's a long time to be on the throne, to to be the king. And Isaiah says he comes into the temple that year Uzziah died. I imagine as, he, as he's thinking through that, that, you know, is his entire lifetime. Whenever he's come into this place, there's been a king on the throne. And it's been the same king for as long as anybody can remember. Think, think about that. It's hard from our perspective because we don't have a king over America. We've got presidents. And it's a little difficult for us because we we give very limited terms to our presidents. Uh, in my lifetime, I came into this world when uh, Eisenhower was president. I see, some of you out there, you can go back further than that to Truman, Roosevelt, perhaps. All right, but just think about from for me when I came into this world, I remembered Eisenhower on the throne of America, and then after him, John F. Kennedy. And John F. Kennedy got shot. We wondered what was going to happen to the throne. His VP takes over, Lyndon B. Johnson. And then after Johnson, y'all help me with this, after Johnson came uh, Nixon, right? And Nixon got into trouble. And we had the whole Watergate scandal, and he gets impeached, and his VP takes over, Gerald Ford and so we've so we 've had five and i 've seen one shot, and i 've seen one impeached, and yet it still seems to work out, and we go on, and then comes um so is it Carter next, and then Nixon I already did nixon didn 't I <laughs> Reagan. Reagan, okay, so we had Carter, we had Reagan, and then we have Bush, and then we have Clinton, and then we have another Bush, and then we have. Obama, And then we have Trump. So I've seen 12 of these guys come and go. And it's okay when they come and go. Imagine just one of them. Imagine Trump for 52 years. No, maybe you don't want to imagine that. (laughs) But imagine any one of them for 52 years. And you can't think of America any other way. This person's in charge. We're clicking along. But after 52 years, he dies. And you're thinking, what's going to happen now? Because we haven't seen ups and downs. I mean, they've never seen ups and downs. They've just seen the one on the throne. And so as as Isaiah goes into the temple, he says, it was a year Uzziah died. So that's on his mind. He's thinking, what's going to happen now? And as he goes into the temple, he is literally blown away. Because he says, Um, when he gets in there, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. I knew it wasn't going to be Uzziah because he's dead. It's like, I didn't expect this. And he, he says, and he's lofty. So the throne's already high, but the Lord himself is lofty and he's exalted. And the train of his robe is filling The temple. Now try to imagine what it was like to see the Lord. As you go through the scriptures, you know Exodus 33 says anyone who sees the Lord will die. Imagine what it is he's seeing. Imagine somebody like Moses who said, I saw the Lord and he wanted to see more of the Lord. Moses is introduced to the Lord and he says, take off, God says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. He immediately gets this picture of God's holiness. And then he sees God work through the miracles through um, of getting people out of Egypt. He sees God part the Red Sea He sees God bring down a cloud when Moses goes into the tabernacle in the daytime. a cloud comes down when he 's there at night. fire comes down, and Moses is the one dwelling in the presence of God in the cloud and in the fire and As though that's not enough. At some point, Moses says to God, I want to see your face. And God says, Request denied. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pass by and I'll let you see my hindquarters, I'll shield you. And when he just passes by, so glorious, Moses. Face begins to shine. And as he comes out of the tabernacle, all of the people of Israel says, cover your face. What happened to you? I mean, he was possessed with the holiness of God that he, that he shone so brightly. The people couldn't take it. Indirect glory of God. Moses got indirect glory of God. And I think Isaiah here is getting the same picture because he says, when I see the, throne, the, the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe. Where's the train? Those of you who've been to a wedding, you've seen those ladies with this long thing going backwards, right? That's the train. And this train of the Lord's robe is, is so huge. It fills the room. Which gives us the picture that God, again, is turned His back is turned. And what Isaiah is focused on is this train. And how awesome and big. And yet the glory of God penetrates it. And Isaiah is in awe of just a portion. A hind portion of God just as Moses was. What does he see? You know, as as you think about... Seeing God the way God is described. It, it reminded me of, of, of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, where it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, which one of us would get that view? See, none of us. Because who here is pure in heart, Blessed are the pure in heart. Those without sin, they can see God. We aspire to that. We look forward to that view of God. But that view of God doesn't come to us completely here on earth. The, uh, the seraphim saw it. Verse 2 says, The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew so God's God's even says these angelic beings can't look upon the glory of God so he's given them two two wings to cover their eyes so they have to fly blindfolded they have to cover their feet in the presence of holiness they have to cover their eyes in the presence of holiness they have another set of wings by which to move Even the angels cannot see the glory of God. They aren't as pure enough either. Uh, It's just a constant reminder of His holiness. And then we get to verse 3. It says, and one of those seraphim calls out to the other and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Why the word holy three times? Holy, holy, holy. Holy. You don't find that anywhere else, describing God any other three words. You only find holy, holy, holy. You don't find merciful, 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 or love, 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 or just, just, just. You only find holy, holy, holy. So why is that? What is God revealing to us here? Uh, again, as we have difficulties with the king analogy, we have sometimes difficulties with the different languages. In English, we don't repeat words. We change to a different case. Um, Matter of fact, my my grammar checker, it just hates it when I repeat a word. You know, it throws up the red line. Delete repeated word. You know, don't do this. The Hebrews, they repeated words for emphasis. We... Declare something, the declarative case. We say something is good. Okay. If we want to go to the comparative case, so we go from good, it's declared this is good, to comparative. It's not just good anymore. It's better than something else. So it's good, better. Declarative, comparative. And then if it's really good, it goes to the superlative case. Good, better, superlative, best. That's the way we're taught to communicate. Some of our kids often say, why can't we just say good, gooder, and goodest? You know? You don't understand. The English language works with different words. The Hebrews didn't have that. They said, unless you just use the same word. So holy, God is holy, declarative. He's holy. Holy. Compared to everyone else, there's no one more holy. Well, he's, he's more than just comparing himself with us. comparing himself with everything. He's holy, holy, holy. He's the holiest. And that's the description we have of God here. And it's not given to God for any other thing because his love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy love mercy his justice is a holy justice this is his premier characteristic when we see him we will be overwhelmed that he is holy 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 without sin without impurities perfect in every way that is god he says when when you see that you tremble you tremble the whole earth is filled with his glory verse 4 and the foundations of the thresholds tremble had the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke um, the foundations tremble you know if you ever come to church And you leave and you get in your car and somebody says, well, what'd you think? And you say, "Boring." Then you didn't come to see Jesus. If you came and all you saw was me, that's a pitiful, sad, boring situation. But if you came and saw Jesus... And when we come to see Jesus and when we look for Jesus and we get the right view of Jesus, we tremble. It says the foundations of the thresholds, it's literally the sockets of the thresholds or the sockets of a door. You know, pick any of these doors that swing. They've got three hinges on the side. They're, those are the sockets that's holding the door and it says when holiness enters the room these doors just begin to to rattle and shake even the wood has enough sense to recognize the holiness of god and it often penetrates my own heart when i go to church and I'd leave thinking ah that wasn't very interesting or that was boring i think then i must be as dead as a stump because i was in the presence of holiness god inhabits the presence and the praise of his people god is in his word god is in his spirit god is in his people god is in his temple And if we don't get that, we leave the same. I encourage you to see, wherever you are, when you come into a corporate worship experience, plead with God, let me see Jesus. I love it as some man came to Philip and said to to him, sir, we we just want to see Jesus. Yes. And that should change everything. Get this holy picture um, that moves us. Well, it goes on. Not only do you begin to see Christ in his glory, in his holiness, as soon as you see him, verse 5, Isaiah, then he says, Woe is me. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Yeah, if you see him. The wood won't be the only thing trembling. You will be trembling. When you really get a a vision of God's passion for his own purity and holiness, that he can't even, that have no desire to even look upon sin. When when you see that, you tremble, and and you begin to say, I'm out of place here, because I'm a sinner, and I'm in the presence of, of the only being that is in existence that is holy, holy, holy. We don't compare. And he takes it up a notch to the holiest of holies. When you see that, maybe that's why we don't pursue the real Christ. We want to see the baby Jesus in a manger because the baby Jesus in a manger we can manage and manipulate. But when we see the true Christ, it causes us a sense of pain. It hurts. As soon as you see Jesus, you see your sin. That's not pretty. You see you don't measure up. You don't even come close It's never been said of me holy 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 nor will it be my holiness is only found in Christ and so as soon as we see him we we recognize that that and it causes a certain degree of pain and that's what Isaiah says he says I'm ruined I'm wiped out I'm undone Uh, this is painful and he says "I, I i got unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips why does he use the lips out of the heart flow the issues of life they come out those issues come out of our lips the apostle james says that the lips are a world of evil james 3 And perhaps Isaiah is using it here as an expression of where our sinfulness is most seen. It's seen on our lips. We express our hearts. And that expression is just profane. Reminds me of uh, whenever you're at a hotel and they have got a swimming pool, you go out and check out the swimming pool. Usually there's there's a sign still today of pool. Rules, right? And besides, just you know, no running and all that kind of stuff. No glass bottles. Like, you usually will see in that list of rules no profanity. But we need that a lot of places. No profanity. But I've often thought, when I see that pool rule, no profanity, and I appreciate no profanity in public places. But I say, you know, if I take that sign seriously, I got to leave right now. I haven't expressed anything yet. But profane is that which is not sanctified, it's that which is not sinful, it's not corrupt. And I'm ruined. I'm a sinner. I am a profane individual. And it, it gets expressed at times through my lips. And Isaiah realized that. And he's in the presence of holiness. And it causes him pain to think about. Whatever he says will express him for who he is, which is a sinner. I mean, he he probably can hear the word sinner, sinner, sinner as the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Profane, profane, profane. I mean, he begins to see the contrast here and then one of the angels, the seraph in verse six, says, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. Wow. You, know, you put something under a microscope to to see it kind of magnified. And I think Isaiah is getting this magnification of his, of his sin right in front of him. And then God descends this coal to cauterize his lips. Perhaps he can smell the burning flesh as he thinks about what is, what is happening. The angel declares, sin, killed, burnt up, destroyed, and you're forgiven calvin says perhaps he's isaiah seeing all of this in a vision it doesn't matter whether it's a vision or whether it was real coal and real burning flesh the symbolism is is very plain that the cleansing from sin is a divine act that god who sent the seraphim in, the angels in says here take this coal The coal was too hot for the angel to pick up. He has to use tongs. He goes and he sears the very place. Isaiah says his sin is expressed. And then he gets the glorious news, sin forgiven. A divine act. Jesus comes to cleanse Isaiah. Um, 1 Timothy one fifteen. it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ knows who he's coming to. He's coming to people like you and me, sinners. It's trustworthy. You can bank on it. You can count on it. Christ's purpose, his plan is to come and save sinners. Matthew 1, 21, when Jesus was born, he says, call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins his passion and his purpose was to save us from our sins another verse John 1 verse 9 we call it the Christian bar of soap how do we get cleansed from sin today 1 John 1 9 says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteous Righteousness. Have you confessed your sins? Have you gone like Isaiah to the holy, holy, holy God and says, God, I'm ruined. I'm, I'm a mess. I am sinful, sinful, sinful. I agree with you. I am not holy, holy, holy. Only you are holy, and I'm a sinner. What can you do? God says, I can cleanse you. I'm faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all your sin. Let me send Christ. It's a trustworthy statement. He came to forgive us of our sins. So that's what's taking place here. And then as soon as that happens, the forgiveness comes, verse eight, it says, then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. I love that. As soon as Isaiah gets cleansed from sin, he hears a, a dialogue in the Godhead: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are discussing who, who who will go and be a prophet, a preacher, a reconciler for me. And Isaiah gets a very important principle, and that is: every time a sinner gets the Savior, the Savior gets a servant Isaiah was the sinner he received salvation forgiveness of sin and he immediately stepped up to the plate what can I do to serve here I am I have just received the greatest gift known to man forgiveness for my very nature who I am expressed it's sin 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 and I have been cleansed of that How can I thank you? Here I am. If you need anything, here I am. Send me. God says, okay. Verse 9, he said, Go and tell the people, keep on listening, do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebrinth, or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felt. The holy seed is its stump. Now, that had to be shocking to Isaiah. I think it's shocking to many of us that the Bible does not present a picture of everybody getting saved. It doesn't present a picture of God even preaching or planning for everybody to get saved. And so Isaiah says, you, you want me to go preach? Okay, what do you want me to say? He says, I want you to just keep preaching, keep preaching, keep preaching, keep preaching until people's hearts get tired of it and hard and they turn away from it. And Isaiah's thinking, how long do I have to do that? I mean, that doesn't sound like a fun assignment that people are not gonna be receptive to the holy word of God, really? and their hearts are going to grow hard and they're going to turn away and I'm not liking this. How long do I have to do this? And God says, I want you to keep doing it until whole cities are devastated. Nations are devastated. Um, Jesus gave the same message when he came. He said, I'm, I'm going to start the disciples said, what are you doing? He says, I'm teaching in parables because there's, there's people here who don't need to hear and they're not gonna hear and their hearts are just gonna grow hard. And the disciples struggled with this too. How long is this gonna go on? You know, we were kind of hoping we were signing up for, for this kingdom where everybody gets saved and comes in and Jesus says, no, 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 the, the way is broad and wide that leads to destruction it's, it's narrow only a few enter into life that's the plan but it's those few every generation until I've got a number too big to count that fills the glories of heaven this, this number that received Christ and received cleansing it's mentioned here in Isaiah as a tenth portion verse 13 it's a tenth portion. It's the church. It's the people of God. The analogy here that end up being the stump. So when you when you burn down the tree, the stump doesn't completely burn up. He says, take that as the tenth part of the tree. Ninety percent is gone, a stump, but ten percent remains. And from there grows life everlasting. Are you in the 10%? That holy portion that God wants to save? You know, the holy portion here, same language used when we give tithes and offerings. A tithe is a tenth. And God describes the tenth as a consecrated, set-apart portion of the fruit of your labor, your pay. So, if you have a portion given to you for labor, God says, now what you just received is because of my sovereignty and grace, you got it. You realize there's a holy portion that you should worship me with. That's the tenth part says give to the Lord his tenth first so we understand that principle that's our finance when God gives us something we we worship him we give back to him a tenth well God says I don't just have a, a, a holy portion of money that you've earned I have a holy portion of people that I've created and of all the people I've created there's this tenth portion a holy portion. These are mine. These are the ones I'm coming to claim. The others will be burned up. It's a large portion that will just have hard hearts and turn away that don't desire to worship and adore me. They don't even want a right view of God because it's painful to have a right view of God. You come undone. You realize how far removed you are, how much grace you need to get to heaven. He says that holy portion. Isaiah preach until that holy portion emerges. That's the ones that I save and come for. Well, as you think through all of this, I mean, this is this is the nature of our God. It's not the easy stuff. This is the right view. The right view. You know, we, we create other views. Well, let me just give you some action steps as I think through. Put this into practical stuff I can do right now. Number one, don't settle for a small, quaint view of God. Crown Him the Lord of Lords. Crown Him with thrones. Crown Him with glory and honor. Jesus Upon his throne. Don't settle for a small view, man invented view. Don't settle for any view you can manipulate because that's a wrong view of God. Number two, maintain a holy vision of Christ even if it brings you pain. I know it's hard to see God rightly because that forces us to see ourselves and that's not pretty. So look for a holy vision of Christ. There's no forgiveness without it. When we see our sin, then we realize we have a need. Number three, rejoice in the forgiveness offered us by God and be ever requesting it. Good news that God pardons sinners through Christ. Good news. Number four, don't keep the good news of the reconciling work of Christ to ourselves. What did Isaiah do? He said, here I am, send me. I know everybody's not going to listen. A lot of people don't even care. They're going to be hard. They're going to turn away. But if you're my Savior, I'm your servant. I'm your man. Here am I. Send me. We must see that responsibility we have to come and represent God to others. We need a holy vision of God. We need His pardon and forgiveness. We must come and confess our sins that we might be cleansed from our sin. We need to be His reconcilers. When we get a right vision of reconciling others to Him, when we get a right vision of God, these things happen. So, like Isaiah I want us to just have a time to confess. I want us to do it with song. So the song you see coming up, just, Lord, I need you. I need need to fall apart, and I need you. So right as you just sit down this morning, you can keep your eyes open. You can kneel if you want. You can lift your hands. Make this a prayer. I'm going to kneel here. Let's pray.
1: is found He's where you Oh God, how
0: I need you Amen. Thank you for praying that prayer with me. I want to turn to a verse I guess I've never heard a preacher share with anybody. But uh, if you're Bible readers, you've come across it, so the secret's out. But here it is, Proverbs 31, verse 6 and 7 give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his troubles no more God is letting us see there in Proverbs 31 he says the strong drink the wine it's a gift I've given to you to help you deal with poverty and troubles and struggles when you're perishing it'll make life a little easier but that's not the remedy for perishing, that just helps the only cure for perishing is that we drink the blood of Christ there's no forgiveness of sins Without the shedding of the blood of Christ. You may say, I need help. I'm troubled. I need to cope. I want to take you to a different level. No, we need salvation. Have you drunk of Christ? When we take this meal, this is our way of symbolically saying, I take the blood of Christ, I take the body of Christ. Unless I have Christ, I will perish. I'm undone. And I'm tired of coping mechanisms. I need to be spared death and ruin. This morning, as we take of the Lord's Supper, let it be a time to say, God, I still need you. I need to eat of Christ and drink of Christ, or I'm undone and and perish. Let it be a time where you continue to worship. If um, it's not your heart, that's not your desire. You're one of those, perhaps, that are being hardened. It's like, oh, it's the last time I want to hear this. That hurts us because we don't want to see anyone perish. But we don't want you to play with God either. Find out where you are. Examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. See if you've taken Christ. Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? That you might be spared from His wrath and might enjoy His holiness. I'll pray as the elders, deacons come forward and you examine yourself to see if you're ready to take this meal this morning. Lord, as we unveil the bread and the wine, may it not just be something that helps us cope this morning, but may it be that which lets us again reflect on life and life in Christ alone. Cleanse us from all our sins. Let us not play with the Lord's Supper. Let us come and say, I need you. I need your flesh and blood to hang on the cross in my place and I need to receive you as my Lord and Savior I do O Lord I express it now that I need to be nourished and maintained by you and you alone that I might not perish I trust and I believe in Christ for those here Lord that still don't get that help them to see the bread and the wine pass by and perhaps let them see holy, 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 in your temple. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.